Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, shalom, 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 wonderful friends. Great to see you. Thank you for being here. We are going to talk theology today. Excited to talk about theology today because that's what we need. That's what we need after uh, a few traumatic days for the Jewish people, for Am Yisrael, that all of us are in healing and we should have safety and security and pride and, uh, every, and uh, everyone should, be, should feel loved and secure. And uh, friends, today we're going to talk about the unity of God. The unity of God, it's really monotheism, monotheism rather than monotheism versus polytheism because it's various dimensions of monotheism. So let's talk about this. But before we do that, let's start with a little bit of a poll. Do you believe that God, one, does not exist? Two, is somewhere, but not here. Three, is everywhere, but singular. Four, is many places and is multiple. Some of these are tricky, they overlap, but these are pretty different. So hopefully it's clear on how you want to cast your vote here. Okay, let's see our results. No one here says God does not exist. 10% say God is somewhere, but not here. 80% say God is everywhere, but singular. And 10% say God is many places and is multiple. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, friends, there are so many different theologies of who and what and where God is. One can be an agnostic claiming there is some prime force, but suggesting we have no clue at all what that force is. One could go, one could go one step further and be an atheist suggesting there is no God or force at all. One, of course, could be a polytheist suggesting there are multiple gods. And among the polytheists, there can be henotheists who argue that each unique God represents a different nation or region of the world, as we saw in the ancient world. Other polytheists suggest that multiple gods rule over the entirety of the world. Another type of polytheism is dualism, where there are two separate gods, such as in Zoroastrianism, where a god of light and good, Ormuzd, and a god of darkness and evil, Ahriman. In Gnosticism, there's also two gods, one beyond this world and one who created this world. In Trinitarianism, the branch of Christianity whose adherents believe in the Trinity, 
there are three beings within the Godhead. So friends, any notion of multiple gods is completely rejected by the rabbis, of course. Here is a source from the, from the Yerushalmi. Everyone know what I mean by the Yerushalmi? The Jerusalem Talmud, right? The Babylonian Talmud is the dominant one, but the Jerusalem Talmud is the second one. And here's what it says over there in the Yerushalmi. Heretics asked Rav Simlai, what about that which is written, El Elohim Hashem, El Elohim Hashem. He knows, which implies a plurality of deities. What do you mean all these different names of God? Aren't all these different names, different beings? He said to them, it is not written here, they know, rather he knows in the singular. His disciples said to him, teacher, those heretics you were able to push away with a reed, but what do you propose to answer us? He said to them, all three of them are together the name of one God, as one who say, as one would say, Basilis Augustus Caesar. Again, they would ask about that which is written, El Elohim Hashem spoke and he called the word world into being. He said, is it written? They spoke and they called. It only says he spoke and he called. His disciples said to him, teacher, you could push away those heretics with a reed, but what will you answer us? He said to them, all three of them are actually the name of the one God in the same way a person would call a builder, a craftsman, a constructor, and an architect, right? That we have multiple names that we exist with, multiple manifestations, but it all emanates from one ultimate source. Chaz de Crescus, the great 14th century Spanish Jewish philosopher who you've probably never heard of, but should have heard of. His rational approach was very influenced by the Rambam, by Maimonides. And here's what Crescus wants to say. Our, our friend here at work, Pam, is a big friend, fan of uh, Crescus. She studies Crescus closely on, on Google. The Trinity is opposed to the Jewish religion, for God is one in perfect simplicity, and he alone is infinite in power. He embraces all perfections. To him alone belong power, wisdom, and will, and all other eternal qualities. He has no partner and is in no way comp comp composite. He exists necessarily, that is to say, he is self-sufficient and owes not his existence to another. The refutation of the doctrine of the Trinity is as follows. If, as the Christians say, the son born of the father is like the father, then the father too must have been born of another. But if so, then he is an effect, not a cause, and has, and has been created by another and has no necessary existence. The same applies to the Holy Ghost. It is also... It, impossible to believe that the Father has all perfections, for if this were so, why should it have been necessary for him to give birth to the Son, who is God, who is God like him? A further proof that the Son is not as perfect as the Father, and that the Father cannot have given all his power to the Son, is the following. The Father had the power of begetting a Son, while the Son does not give birth. If this is because the Son cannot give birth, then he is not perfect. If, on the other hand, it is because he does not wish to give birth and the power he has, has is set at naught. Friends, on the opposite end of polytheism, there is monotheism. So once again, we've talked about agnosticism, about atheism, about the polytheism of multiple gods, about henotheism of different regions. We've talked about dualism and, Trinitari and, and Trinitarism and Gnosticism. These various theologies which depart ways 
from the Jewish absolute commitment to monotheism, even though, as we're going to see, there's large diversity, there's big diversity among the monotheistic um, uh, uh, theologians. So on the opposite end, the polytheism, there's monotheism. Poly, of course, meaning many. Mono, of course, meaning one, suggesting that there is only one God. And all of traditional Jewish theology is committed to monotheism. The only debate being about what monotheism means and entails, and that's a big debate. According to deists, it is true that God created the world, but God is so far beyond the world and removed from any involvement in the world. That's monotheism, but a very different kind of monotheism. According to theists, right, theists as opposed to deists, the theists, on the other hand, say, yes, God is separate from and beyond this world. But at the same time, God is involved with this world, both through imminence and transcendence, right? The deist says, yep, a God, but the God is gone. The theist says, yes, it's a God, and the God is here and involved. The panentheist, not to be mistaken with the pantheist, the panentheist would go even further, arguing that everything in this world is God, although God is beyond this world also, as opposed to the pantheist who would say God is everything in this world, but nothing beyond this world. A good example of pantheism could be illustrated through the ideas of our old friend Spinoza. Remember Spinoza and his great debate with the Dutch rabbis? Of course you do. Yes, it was one of my favorites also. One of the highlights of my year also, I know. I know we all had a good time this last year, but I know that was also one of the highlights of our year, our, our Spinoza debate. <laughs> so here's what Spinoza has to say over there. Nothing exists but God. And let me be clear, this is pantheism. This does not line up with traditional Jewish theology, but we want to study everything. We don't want to just study tradition, right? Nothing exists but God. Oh, sounds so good. Sounds good so far, right? God is one. That is only one substance that can be granted in the universe. Whatsoever is in God and without God, nothing can be or be conceived. God is the indwelling and not the transient cause of all things. Oh, oh, God is the indwelling but not the transient cause. God is not a cause. He's not a mover and shaker. All things which are, are in God, okay? Besides God, there can be no substance. That is nothing in itself external to God. Learning to see God in all things, he continues. He who clearly and distinctly understands himself and his emotions loves God. Ah, right? Because if know thyself and you will know God. Remember that famous phrase? And so much the more in proportion as he more understands himself and his emotions. That essentially God is nature. By understanding human nature, I know God. Our mind, insofar as it knows itself and the body under the form of eternity, has to that extent necessarily a knowledge of God and knows that it is in God and is conceived through God. Nature does not work with an end in view. Nature does not work with an end in view for the eternal and infinite being, which we call God or nature, acts by the same necessity as that whereby it exists. Therefore, as he does not exist for the sake of an end, so neither does he act for the sake of an end of, the, of his existence and of his action. There is neither origin nor end. Okay, very interesting. Now, here's a critique of this idea presented by Spinoza, which could be found in Lambert van Velthusen of Utrecht, the critique of Spinoza. He acknowledges God and confesses him. He confesses him to be the maker and founder of the universe. But he declares that the form, appearance, and order of the world are evidently as necessary as the nature of God and the eternal truths, which he holds are established apart from the decision of God. Therefore, 
He also expressly declares that all things come to pass by invincible necessity and the invin inevitable fate. He does this in accordance with his principles. For what room can there be for a last judgment? Or what expectation of reward or of punishment when all things are attributed to fate and all things declared to emanate from God with inevitable necessity? Or rather when he declares that this whole universe is God, right? There's no will of God. There's no Raton Hashem. There's no mover. It's all nature. It operates by necessity. For I fear that our author is not very far removed from this opinion. At least there is not much difference between declaring that all things emanate necessarily from the nature of God and that the universe itself is God. I think therefore that I have not strayed far from the truth or done any injury to the author if I denounce him as teaching pure atheism. He's like Spinoza's an atheist with hidden and disguised arguments. Okay, now Spinoza, as you recall, never says he's an atheist. He's a very much a, a believer in divinity, but essentially Lambert van Velthusen is saying that Spinoza functionally is atheist. Once you say God has no will and God is not beyond the world, simply is nature, in what sense can we still call that God? You can't pray to such a being. This God can't intervene. This God is not beyond. So in what sense, even if you call that God, even if you, what, in what sense is it? The Rambam, let's go back to Maimonides, makes a clear case for how he understands this point in Jewish theology. Once again, the greatest theologian in Jewish history. I don't say greatest as a personal uh, opinion, but the most uh, authoritative and the most quoted um, and perhaps the most sophisticated, at least of the Middle Ages. He writes here, this comes from, um, this comes from his Yada Chazaka, his, his Yesodei HaTorah, his, his initial, his initial uh, uh, laying down the foundations of Torah. It is the most basic of basic principles and a support for wisdom to know that there is something, namely God, that existed before anything else did, and that he created everything else that there is. Everything in the skies, on the ground, and in between exists only because of the fact that he created them. Now, it's important to remember that Rambam is an Aristotelian, right? Aristotle, the student of Plato, the student of Socrates, the, the way to remember the order is spa. If you wanna to go to the, the Greek spa, it goes Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Plato, of course, is a mystic. Aristotle is a rationalist. So Rambam is not too into Plato, but, but more into Aristotle. And Aristotle, like all the Greeks, thought God didn't create the world. The world is eternal. And even though the Rambam is, is, a, is, a, is an Aristotelian, is Aristotelian, nonetheless, he rejects the idea that the world is eternal and believes ultimately that there was a creation. Let, he continues, let it be known that if the creator did not exist, then nothing else would Right? He understands his proof of God as being the notion that everything, uh, that there needs to be an initial creator. But it's not a proof. It's not a proof. But, but part of his logic is that um, there needs to be a cause for every effect. Right? There needs to be an ultimate, an ultimate source. Then nothing else would, for nothing can exist in the penalty of the creator. Let it further be known that if everything ceased to exist, the creator alone would exist and would not have ceased to exist like everything else had. Because God is nothing. God is nothing. God is everything, but God is nothing. God is no thing. And God is beyond the realm of existence, beyond the realm of, it's called yesh me'ayin, right? That there is existence that emerges from nothingness. God is nothing. All things in creation are dependent upon the creator for their continued existence, but he does not need any of them. 
He goes to number four. One of the prophets said, but the Lord is the true God, meaning that only God is everlasting and that nothing else is. This is what the Torah has said. There is none else beside him. Namely, that there is nothing in existence that is everlasting except for God. Okay, good. So this is the Rambam who reminds us that um, of his rationalist theology, although he's involved in Kabbalah, he very much understands this idea that God exists independently of existence. Now on the opposite end, Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, known as the Alter Rebbe, he rails against deism. Once again, the theism is that God is actively involved. The deism is that there is a God, but that God is very far removed. And it makes sense that the Alter Rebbe, the Baal Hatanya, would ultimately reject this, if you know the, the Baal Hatanya's theology. Okay, here's, here's, the, here's our quote from the Alter Rebbe. Here lies the answer to the heretics, and here is uncovered the root of their error in which they deny God's providence, God's involvement over particulars, hashkacha pratit, and the miracles and wonders recorded in scripture. Their false imagination leads them into error, for they compare the work of the Lord, creator of heaven and earth, to the works of man and his artifices. These stupid persons compare the work of heaven and earth to a vessel which emerges from the hand of the art artificer. Once the vessel has been fashioned, it no longer requires its maker. Even when the maker has completed his world and goes about his own business, the vessel retains the form and appearance it had when it was fashioned. Their eyes are too blind to notice the important distinction between the works of man and his artifices, in which something is made from something, the form alone being changed from a piece of silver into a vessel, and the creation of heaven and earth which is the creation of something out of nothingness, okay? So he's saying, don't think this is, this, is, this is a vessel maker. You might think that God is a vessel maker. God makes a vessel, sells it in the marketplace, so to speak, or gives it away, and then boom, done. People go have the vessel, but God is done with the job of creation. Don't just think of God as creator. Actually, the involvement goes beyond. He continues, this ladder is an even greater marvel than the division of the Red Sea. For instance, when the Lord caused the strong east wind to blow all through the night until the waters were divided to stand up as a heap and a wall, if the Lord had stopped the wind for but a moment, the waters undoubtedly would have begun to flow again in their normal natural way and would no longer have stood upright like a wall. Although this nature Im implanted in the waters is also something created of nothing, yesh me'ayin, for all that a stone wall does stand upright without the help of the wind. This is not true of the nature of water. It follows a fortiori that with regard to creation ex nilo, higher than nature and a much greater marvel than the division of the Red Sea. It is certain that the creature would revert to the stage of nothingness and negation, God forbid, if the creator's power were, were to be removed from it. It is essentially, therefore, for the power of the worker to be in his work constantly, if the work to be, is to be kept in existence, okay? So let's compare. The rationalist, the deist says, God created the world. God is not active in the world. Because how could God be active in the world if there's evil in the world? God would stop the evil. God is removed. God, God made my heart. My heart works. But now the laws of nature dictate how my heart works. Balatanya and the mystics say, uh-uh. No, every single heartbeat is divine grace. Every single heartbeat is God willing the heart to be. Every, every, when HTO, when H2O stays bonded together in the form of water, it only exists as water because of a divine active force maintaining the properties of water. 
The air is only breathable, not because of the laws of nature, because of an active divine presence that enables our miraculous existence. These are very different notions of monotheism. Okay, Rabbi Louis, Rabbi Louis Jacobs, uh, known with the Masorti movement, the Masorti movement could be called the conservative movement or the traditional movement. We don't have a Masorti movement in America. Masorti movement is normally associated with Israel and the UK, uh, closely aligned with the conservative movement, but a little bit different. Conservative movement in America uh, has moved very much left over the decades. The Masorti movement has also, but maintains itself as uh, by and large a halachic movement in the UK and in Israel and aligns itself with conservative, but also differentiates. And there's been some tensions there over time. Rabbi Louis Jacobs explained this viewpoint of panentheism as found in Jewish mysticism and in Hasidic thought. This is in his principles of the Jewish faith. The idea of Hasidism was dubbed heretical by the opponents of the movement who believed it to be a radical departure from traditional theism. To suggest that God is in all things or that all things are in God is to blur the distinction between God and his creation and between good and evil. That God's glory fills the earth was taken to mean by the way opponents of Hasidism that his providence is over all, not that he is found as it were in material things. But the Hasidic teachers did not hesitate to teach that from the point of view of God, as it were, there is no world and that the purpose of man's worship is to pierce the veils of illusion until he sees only the divine in all things. Okay, so for the Arizal, for the Arizal, there is no world. There are worlds, there are many worlds, olamot, right? We exist in these worlds and these are ultimately an illusion. The material world as we live in it is an illusion and divinity permeates all existence. There only is God, ain't owed milvado. For the rationalist, God is supreme sovereign over all of the world, but not within it all. Why? Why is it such a problem? Why is Kabbalah and Hasidism such a problem for the misnagdim, for the rationalists? Because if God is everywhere, and if God is in specific things, God is multiple. God is multiple. Now the Kabbalists will reject it. They say the multiplicity is within the singular, right? But the, but the Misnagdim, the rationalists don't buy it. No, God is one entity out there. If you put God into everything, if God is in my pen, then in this pen is separate from this phone and God is in both of them. Now God is multiple. There's my pen God, there's my phone God. There's the God who's here present with Cheryl Hammerman and the God that's sitting over there with Lauren Blatt and the God over here with me. And the God, and all of a sudden, there, there's too much multiplicity and the Kabbalists reject this. No, no, it's still singular. If you go to India, if you go to India and you talk to your cab driver in Mumbai and you say to the cab driver in Mumbai, a great Hindu, uh, of course, there's many religions in India. There's Muslims and, and, uh, and Hindus and there's, uh, uh, and there's Sikhs and there's, uh, you know, and, and a whole range, of course, there's Jews. Um, I'm sure there's Christians. I mean, obviously, Mother Teresa was over there, you know, uh, a whole bunch. You know, obviously, there's Buddhists. I mean, there's a whole range of, but if you talk to your Hindu cab driver and you say, how many gods are there? I'll say, many, many, infinite number of gods. What do you mean? I'm a polytheist. I'm Hindu. If you talk to a Hindu academic, they'll say, no, no, Hinduism is monotheistic. Yes, yes, there's multiple gods, but that ultimately is under the framework of one God. So there's always a discrepancy between the sort of elite scholars and the lay people. 
And so how does a Kabbalist who practices the, the divinity everywhere compare to a Rebbe or, or, or an academic of, of Hasidism? That's always a question. It is easy to get confused between panentheism and pantheism. To make sure it is clear, here is how one scholar different, differentiated between Spinoza and the Alter Rebbe, right? Spinoza, we just talked about his pantheism. God is not beyond the world, God is all in nature. And the Alter Rebbe, who rejects deism, um, uh, that God is, beyond, is not active in the world, and certainly rejects pantheism, that God is not beyond the world. And here's how, um, here is how Teitelbaum, here's how Teitelbaum over here, explains the differences between these two. For Spinoza, he writes, God and nature are one and the same. But for Schneer Zalman, God is transcendent as well as imminent. Number two, for Spinoza, there's no creation of the world by God. But for Schneer Zalman, the Jewish view of creation ex nihilo stands. Number three, for Spinoza, the universe is eternal. But for Schneer Zalman, the world is temporal and God alone is eternal. Ah. Number four, for Spinoza, it's impossible to attribute will to God, Ratzon Hashem. But for Shneer Zalman, it is God's will which has created the world, which endows the world with the appearance of reality. Number five, for Spinoza, God does not work through nature, but is nature. But for Shneer Zalman, God is revealed through nature. So friends, when Jews recite the Shema Yisrael, and we recite that God is Echad, God is Echad, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad? For some, this means there is one God and there is no other. Ain od milvado. There's none beside the one God. For others, this means that God is one. God has no multiplicity. You understand the difference? Some think it means there's one God, no other. Some think it means God is one. God has no multiplicity. For others, still, this means that there is nothing but God. Right? There's only one reality to all universe. This is a new read of Ain od milvado. In our debates of theism versus atheism, some religious people label everything beyond their own viewpoint as heretical or idolatrous. Others take a more tolerant viewpoint, while yet others go one step further and take a pluralistic view. The pluralist claims the other views are also true or at least have validity. For the soft pluralist, truth is complex and so we hold some doubt and understand there's more truth than we ourselves hold within one religious tradition and one spiritual experience. For the hard pluralist, everyone's ideas must necessarily be true. The tolerant religious person doesn't go so far as the pluralist and claims that others' views are false, but we should still be respectful toward them. Is God worth fighting for? Is our vision of theology worth fighting for? Is someone else's viewpoint whether religious or secular, however different from our own, worth fighting against? Now, to be clear, Plato, Plato thought that monotheism was a moral question. Why? Because if you have multiple gods, you have multiple truths. And if you have one God, you have one truth. According to Plato, we become moral relativists if we're polytheists. This God says this, and this God says that. And so there's multiple truths of what's good. This one says kill. This one says don't kill. This one says adultery is fun and pleasurable. This one says adultery is evil, right? And multiple gods. But if there's one God, there's one truth from the one God. So for Plato, this is a moral question. This is not just spiritual theology, right? This actually affects the ethics as we live by. What is the authority of our ethics ultimately? 
many Jews deemed Christianity to be idolatrous due to the multiplicity of gods. However, other Jewish scholars sought to differentiate Judaism from Christianity while also honoring that Christianity was not polytheistic or idolatrous. For example, the contemporary British scholar and theoretician, Rabbi Dr. Alon Goshen Gottstein, who's gonna be speaking at VBM next month about his new book about interfaith heroes where he's gonna look at Hinduism and Sikhism and Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and Judaism and all these people. Um, and I'm a little biased because I have an article in his book. Um, but Goshen Gottstein writes over here. It is an entirely normative principle in Judaism that the monotheist expected of Gentiles by the Noahide laws is of a less absolute kind than the expected of Jews. Oh, in the Middle Ages, many authorities indeed recognized Christian doctrine, even the doctrine of the Trinity, as basically monotheistic belief. One can readily understand how the doctrine of a tri triune Godhead could contaminate Christianity's claim to be monotheistic. However, Christianity was generally not considered polytheistic or idolatrous. Though Maimonides, who did not live in Christendom, of course, he lived in Muslim Spain and he lived in Muslim um, uh, Egypt, dissented from the widespread rabbinic agreement on this point. The concept of the Trinity was represented in the church as a mystery or paradox because it apparently contradicted a central component of their faith in the one God. Thus the Trinity, even though it is an essential feature of Christian theology and not merely one of folk religion, could be taken by Jewish scholars as a supplement to, rather than a replacement for the idea of God as one. By Jewish standards as applied to Jews, Trinitarianism is not monotheism, but by the standards of the Noahide laws, the doctrine of the Trinity is not an idolatrous belief to which Judaism can express in a, an objection. <clears throat> now, friends, Islam goes even further. Of course, of course, there's no question that Islam is not idolatry in the Jewish view. There's no question about that. In fact, as it goes to symbolism, Jew, Jews have a pro, have, have, Jewish theology has problems with Christian symbolism. Whereas Islam goes even further than Judaism, you won't find you won't find um, any depictions of God. In fact, sometimes you find riots when people even try to draw cartoons of Muhammad, the prophet, not to mention of God. And so you walk into a mosque, you're not going to see such things. And so Islam, most certainly by Jewish law, is not idolatrous. There's no while there's questions about Jews walking into churches, there's no questions about Jews walking into mosques. Um, Okay, and uh, much more to say about that. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs goes even further, and then I'm gonna close up here and we'll move into conversation. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs goes even further, arguing that Jewish theology is not only adamantly monotheist, but also separate from other forms of monotheism. He writes, not only is Judaism structurally different from the other monotheistic faiths, it is also different from the other great attempts to understand the human condition, philosophy, the invention of ancient Greece, the Greek idea is of truth as system. The Jewish idea is of truth as story. Get it? The Greeks think of truth through the lens of system. The Jews think of truth through story or narrative. The philosophical quest has at most times been the search for truth that is timeless and universal. For Judaism, this systematically omits the most important features of the human situation, time and perspective. Time is the medium through which we learn in which we make the long, slow journey from violence to justice, oppression to freedom, hierarchy to equality, 
Perspective is the dimension through which we discover that there are points of view different from and not reducible to our own. So friends, to conclude, in the end, we can be humbled that each of us individually and alone knows very little, even collectively, we know very little about the spiritual mysteries beyond. But part of that humility is also not rejecting ideas that we've inherited and honoring our tradition. And at the same time, respecting others' ideas in their search for understanding. We can, we can debate the nature of God, uh, but in the end, we must do so with deep humility. Okay, friends, let's open up the conversation here. I would love to hear from you. Okay, Eileen, I see your hand up there. Yeah, so when most of these um, revered scholars wrote, there was no concept of the Big Bang. Today, we have a better understanding and appreciation for this. So how do we combine the physical theories, the scientific theories, which probably can be proved with the ideas of God? Great, 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 wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Eileen. And so let me um, let me bracket two two views. Um, one view that I want to bracket, just name but bracket, is is um, is essentially the religious fundamentalists who reject science. Who says science? What is it? What is this junk? You know, this is all lies and you know secular people trying to destroy religion. And uh, essentially would, would not be interested in evolution, would not be interested in Big Bang Theory, would not be interested in any of these findings, um, you know, as calling it all irrelevant. I'm gonna bracket that, that end. I'm gonna bracket the other end also that says religion is, re religion is Michigas, it's all jokes. Science is the real truth and religion has no value. It was all just people who didn't know science. And so they made up things as best they could. Right? I'm gonna bracket that too. I'm gonna to take seriously religion. I'm gonna take seriously science and I'm not gonna put them in at war with each other. Judaism and science are not at war with each other. They complement each other. Judaism embraces scientific finding and good science ought to embrace the realm of meaning making. Science doesn't teach us ethics. Science doesn't teach us spirituality. Science doesn't teach us community. Science has its role. And there's a whole nother role for religion and community and spirituality and ethics and justice work and all of that. So they complement each other. And so, and so the Big Bang Theory. Now, first of all, I want to give a shout out to Daniel Matt, Daniel Matt, the Zohar scholar's book, God and the Big Bang. If you haven't read it, Eileen, I, 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 I know you read 35 books a week. So you could read the Big Bang, week, uh, the Big Bang God and the Big Bang tonight uh, as you're falling asleep. <laughs> for, me, it would take, for me, it would take me two months. Uh, you know, each night I get through half a page and I'm, and I'm looking like this in my bed. You know, <laughs> I used to read, I used to read 10 books a week. Now I got kids and I got a very busy job. And if I can get through half a page, I'm a, I'm a happy man. Um, in any case, it, it's a good book. And he does a lot of important work there um, in God and the Big Bang. And actually he shows deep synergy between Big Bang theory and Kabbalah. How Kabbalah actually is very much in sync with this, this idea. In any case, I don't read the creation story in Bereshit as a description of science or of history. I, I read the story of Adam and Eve and God Eden, in the Garden of Eden as a spiritual and moral story that we can learn lessons from. 
And so when we say seven days of creation, this is an idea. It's true. It's not true in a literal scientific or historical sense. It's true in a moral spiritual idea that we can be moved by. But this doesn't in any way, um, uh, you know, um, uh, prevent us from embracing the, whatever the leading scientific theories are and how the world came into being. And the idea that the Big Bang Theory can still mean that, um, that God is ultimately a force behind such an occurrence taking place. And so it leaves us with more questions and more mystery. Um, and so I think we can uh, reject creationism, um, which seeks to throw out evolutionary, uh, uh, you know, thought of evolution um, and throw out the Big Bang Theory. And I think we can also reject the idea that by embracing the Big Bang, by some, by some sense, we can't be religious people where we can't, we can't have a sense of wonder for, for God anymore. So Eileen, thank you for that, that great question. Hi, Scott. Hey, I have uh, two kind of dumb questions. Um, so one is, um, is, it, is it correct as sort of a historical fact to, to think of monotheism as a, we'll call it a Jewish innovation? Mm. Uh, or, 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 or did it evolve over time and other people were other cultures and other religions or kind of other societies were kind of getting their brain there? Like, how, 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 how do you think about that? And then the second one is, you, you were starting to talk about the, um, uh, like, Islam and whatnot. Is there, is there a sense within kind of the, the hierarchy of monotheism where there's one God and only one God, and anyone who says that they believe in God, quote-unquote, we're all believing in the same thing? Or would a would a monotheist argue there can be incorrectly conceived gods or wrong gods? Like you get credit for believing in one God, but it might not be the right God, if that makes sense. Great, great, love it. So just to be, okay, your, your first question, I understand very clearly. And to make sure I understand your second question correctly, it is about um, the hierarchy within monotheistic belief as to, um, who is more right within monotheism? But 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 what is, is there, that right? Is there is there such a hierarchy? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Great. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Amazing. Yes. Great. So um, so to your first question, there's no doubt that the long-held uh, Jewish tradition and self-understanding is um, the uh, the the Jews as the inventors, <coughs> inventors is the wrong word, the this, this discoverers um, uh, of, of monotheism. Um, and that from Judaism emerges uh, uh, Christianity and from Christianity emerges Islam. Our, our story of the Western world is such that the Jews are the first monotheists of the three monotheistic faiths. Um, nonetheless, if you look at ancient history, in particular, at, um, at roughly the, 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 the late Bronze Age of the 14th century before Common Era, we will see some ancient artifacts that seem to demonstrate, or if you look at the sixth century before Common Era in Zoroastrianism, uh, uh, if you look at these, um, these early sources, we will see that there are other societies um, which seem to be uh, have some evidence of ideas of monotheism, monotheism, 
not only as theorists, but as practitioners. Yeah. Uh, and so even though we think of Avraham as Abraham, as the great global ambassador of monotheism, it is unclear to me historically um, what he was influenced by, if anything, um, or if in other parts of the world, this was emerging also. You know, there are these theories out there that when one person on one side of the world gets an idea, someone else is getting it at the same time. There's yeah. an energy in the world around when things emerge. So I, I, I never want to speak definitively. For ex And here's another example of that. We think of Abraham as the first one having bris mila, the first one getting circumcised. But we have some evidence that circumcision predates Abraham. So even though this is his fidelity to monotheism, as, as we learn, and kind of the first to go through this, um, we see that this idea was already kind of there. Now, we, of course, do have our sources that Abraham uh, breaks his father Terach's idols. He smashes his father's idols. His father, mm -hmm. in his family, they are polytheists. Um, and his surrounding society, he is looking to break down polytheism. Um, but the origins of monotheism, I think, most certainly are complex. That said, I think in terms of syst systemic approach and sustainability, I think it is fair to say that the, the sole survivors of the discovery of monotheism are the Jews. Yeah. Right. Yes, there were ancient tribes who may have been involved to degrees that are beyond my 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 historical understanding that I get, but th that is worth reading about. And there's many articles out there on this. Um, but we are the surviving uh, ambassadors for the origins of of, of such a discovery. Uh, that's okay. So that's the first point. The second point, most certainly today, we we don't like to debate theology. Um, very few people debate theology today, right? We like to be pluralists. Everyone's got it right. Everyone um, is welcome. Um, everyone, um, you know, we don't even get worked up about it. You talked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're going to cut each other's heads off, right? We're going to cut each other's heads off, right? If we're going to debate partisan politics in America, we're going to cut each other's heads off. But we say, oh, you believe in many gods. You believe in none. Okay, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's have kiddish. You know, nobody really cares. And so on the one hand, that's progress, that we don't cut each other's heads off over God. On the other hand, it's a little sad that we don't get worked up about theology, right? This is important stuff. And so um, in the olden days, by the olden days, I mean pre-modernity, just a few hundred years ago, we got really worked up about this stuff. And most certainly there were hierarchies. There were most certainly were hierarchies. And within those hierarchies um, <clears throat> had to do not only with ontological and epistemological questions and metaphysical questions in terms of the nature of being, the nature of truth, the nature of reality, but also had to do with essentially um, what is God and God's nature. For, for, for the Maimonidean camp, you can say nothing. It's called negative theology. You can say nothing about what God is. It is idolatrous because once you have descriptors of divinity, you have made God multiple, right? You are idolatrous if you say God is X, Y, or Z. You can say what God does. You can say actions. God acts mercifully. But if you say God is good, even though in theory he would agree with such an idea, you have made, that's a form of idolatry, right? You have, you have limited, you have boxed in, Eileen. Yeah. You have boxed in, okay? And so you have moved God from infinite to finite. Um, and, and that is ultimately the definition of idolatry taking the infinite and making it finite, taking the uh, ephemeral and making it concrete. Um, and so on the other hand, for the mystics, of course we can describe God. 
Every experience is a description of divinity. And so even though they're all gonna call themselves monotheists, um, I think they, would, they wouldn't embrace a hierarchy as much as there's the truth and those out. <laughs> it's not like different degrees. They would say, um, you know, I think they would say, you know, that there's an understanding of the masses, which is acceptable. And then there's the things that people who really know, know, right? The people who really know something, know something. And that's, that's what Maimonides is ultimately trying to get us toward, that towards the meditation of God. Um, and so, um, and so it, it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us that it's, it's, they want us to say, it's not enough to say there's one God. I believe in one God. I don't know what that God is. They want us to feel this, be immersed in this and be immersed in that, that reality, understanding that that reality will transform us. Dostoevsky has his famous question about, um, uh, you know, does, uh, can one, um, you know, how, how does he frame the question? Someone help me. Uh, he's got a very particular wording. Um, uh, uh, essentially, um, is somebody who believes in God necessarily, you know, let, let, let me bracket it. I'll, I'll come back to it because I don't want to bash uh, Dostoevsky, but, but I'll, I'll pull it up while we're talking. So in short, in short, the understanding that um, God is necessary in his view for virtue, for, for good. Um, and, and, is, and the rejection is associated with the problem of evil. Of course, we know that to be oversimplistic. We know that to be oversimplistic. But in short, yes, there's a hierarchy within, within monotheism. I don't think I answered your question very well there, though. I'm sorry. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. Um, based on the numbers from the poll, <laughs> I think I was the only one who picked number four. Wow. Um, I, I think th this, this might be very like overly simplistic or very basic, but when we have so many uh, blessings for everything, I mean, and so that made me think about, I mean, I never really gave this any thought, but that's why I love your class and, and the polls and everything like that. But um, when you see a rainbow, there's a blessing. With the birth of a child, there's a blessing. In hopes that someone gets well, there's a blessing. There's blessings for everyone. So that would, I, I believe in one God, but that one God is in a lot of places. So I, I don't, I mean, maybe it's overly simplified, but I, I thought it was kind of a trick question, but then I thought about it and I said, that's the one I'm picking. So um, I, th that's the way that I define my monotheism because I, I agree with all the, <laughs> I mean, the discussion of today is about pronouns. And I believe the pronoun, you know, the pronoun is one God and it mostly talks about he, that kind of thing. But um, uh, that that's just where I was coming from. And I, and I thought I say, okay, I can do the math. I'm the only one that picked this. And then I had to think about why I was the only one. So, yeah. Okay, Cheryl, great, great. Thank you for that. You know, and we should be we should be clear that it, it's it's not. You know, Rev. Cook famously says that that um, that in some ways a believer can be a heretic by by really not understanding at all what they say they believe in, and and a quote unquote atheist can actually be much closer to the truth by rejecting a whole bunch of stuyotes. And so we have to actually understand what, what do we mean by unity? What do we mean by oneness? What do we mean by multiplicity? We can't just shake and say, I'm a believer. I'm a good Jew. I believe in X, Y. We have to actually understand what we're talking about. And so Cheryl says like, this notion of multiplicity is quite complex. You know, so the Ma'or Veshemesh, a Hasidic thinker, 
He said, why does it say in the Amidan, the first blessing of the Shemona Esrei, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Velohei Yaakov. And if you're a part of the reform or liberal conservative, conservative books use both the traditional and the innovative approaches, or some of them do, um, and you add Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Velaya, right? We say, but we don't say, the Ma'ori Basham says, we don't say Elohei Abraham Yitzchak Yaakov. We say Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak Velohei Yaakov. We say God three times. And he says, because each of them had their own God, so to speak. Right. It's not that there's one God and they all really good one. He said, each of them has their own God relationship. And so this multiplicity, for example, if, if, um, if I'm Barbara Mark Dreyfus, there's the Barbara Mark Dreyfus who's sitting right over there. You can touch her skin. You can feel her face, right? Then there's this book of poetry by Mar Barbara Mark Dreyfus. And if I hold the book, I'm holding a piece of Barbara, right? And then I can hug Barbara's grandchild or great-grandchild. And I can, and in a sense, by hugging this great grandchild, I'm hugging Barbara, right? And then I could, and then I could um, read an email from Barbara Mardrivis. And this is experiencing Barbara. Barbara's in the book. Barbara's in her family. Barbara's there in the email. But is Barbara here on Zoom, or is that just like an illusion? I, I, I see Barbara on my screen, but is that so? We have this extended. We have, we have a multiplicity of self. We are in many places at one time. Right, we are we are in many places, even even as people. Not to mention, uh, not to mention God. And so, and so, I don't think that Jewish theology rejects the multiplicity. Um, it just it consumes the multiplicity within the singularity, and that relationship is very complicated. It's a very complicated relationship, you know. And so, um, but that plurality, I think, is crucial to understanding this. And thankfully, we have a lot of innovations today with feminist theology and with queer theology and, you know, um, uh, that emerges in many different camps, process theology, really an explosion of, of theology. And we should never mistake the interesting, the provocative with true. Right? Just because something is new or novel or interesting or provocative doesn't make it true, right? we should still interrogate it. But thankfully, we've got more people engaged in it. It wasn't, it's not just a small group who was, who was involved in this. And so, uh, so Cheryl, thank you for that. I think this, this uh, you know, I, 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 I talk about my five-year-old daughter a lot, but she's, every night before sleep, she's asking these questions of, you know, of, of yeah, you know, of, um, uh, you know, her, her most recent one was, I think I shared last week is is how do we hear? How do we how do we hear God? She desperately wants to hear hear God, and so she's listening for sounds. She's listening, trying to understand this, um, and, and is and and she was so excited. Even though I've told her many times before, she's so excited because when I, I, I every time I call God, she to her, I call God, she to her. She's she she listens and she's women women. God is a girl. I said no no. God's not a girl. So I, she said, oh, then God's a boy. I said, no, no, God's not a boy. God's not a boy. So she says, but, but if God's not a boy and God's not a girl, what, what is God? It's like so hard to understand. You know, she's craving to understand this. And, and I said, God is in you. She said, she is? She, she's inside of me? Where? You know? So she's, you know, but the idea is not for her to like embrace, like teach her the truth, so to speak, but to be full of a sense of wonder and awe, to live animated by these questions, the search, so to speak. As Heschel said, it's not only God in search of man, it's, it's a man in search of God, it's God in search of man. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Um, Lauren and then Steve. Yeah, Lauren and then Steve. Oh, okay. So I'll be quick. 
So I, I love the way you're raising your daughter because of course I grew up in the days where God was like Santa Claus, right? A guy with a white beard sitting in heaven and judging us and was like a fearful person because if you did something wrong, you were going to get punished. But there's, you know, as I've grown older, thank God, um, my view is that, the, you know, the different names of God, um, El Shaddai, Shrinan, everything, those are just different aspects of the one God. However, I've never believed, I mean, I've met Bale Chuva who think that God is like trying to find them a shidduch and God is trying to find them a job. And that I could never, never made sense to me that God is more sort of behind the, the greater workings created the world, but it's up to us to do what we can and want in the image of God. Is, is that kind of a heretical view? Oh, uh, the, the the view. The, oh, I see. I see that essentially the God has stepped away to some degree. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. Okay, great. So um, lots to say here, and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll be relatively br brief. But let me be clear, though, in, in regards to the Santa Claus in the sky. I love Santa Claus. My kids love Santa Claus. That my 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 three year old he is obsessed with Santa Claus. Everywhere we go, he wants to find him. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, he wants Santa Claus. He wants to be a good boy, so Santa Claus will come to the house. Unfortunately, Santa Claus doesn't come to our house. Actually, he did last year for our foster kids, but, <laughs> but that was me. That was me. So, um, uh, but um, but but I do believe that we have to um, we do have to become atheists to become theists. We have to kill off the God that we no longer believe in to actually believe in God. We have to really kind of shatter those images that we were given as young kids in media in Hollywood, um, and and that we were given as kids in in you know this this God the Judge who's angry and ag angry at us and judging us and we really do have to kind of kill that off in order to really be a believer. Otherwise, we're kind of plagued still in in child child theology. That's not for me to reject the idea of God as a judge. I just think if God is a judge, that is one piece of many different manifestations of what divinity can, can ultimately be in addition to being a judge. So that's the first bit. But then I think your, your question about God stepping away um, is very important. It's very important because yes, it does not align perfectly with um, traditional Jewish theology as we have inherited it. And yet, uh, for the most part, and yet if we look at 20th century theology post Shoah, we can't disregard that stuff so quickly. Let's start with liberal theology. Liberal theology can most easily and most famously be equated with um, Harold Kushner. So Harold Kushner of, uh, um, you know, is, uh, is very clear that there's not a God participating in our, in our presence. And then if you look at even liberal orthodoxy, like a Yitz Greenberg, Yitz Greenberg is also very clear that as we talked about last second, that just as a child matures into a, uh, into a baby matures into a child and into a young adult and um, and into an adult and into a senior and and um, and passing into dotage. Um, so too does humanity mature in such a sense and God's relationship matures and God, just as a parent learns to take a step back, step back as their child matures. So too God takes a step back and a step back and to the point where the only way to understand the Shoah and God is such that God is present and crying, but God is not an intervener in such a matter. God has left that work to us. The problem of evil is the problem for humanity, not the problem for God. And so this can be jived a little bit in some traditional theology, in Maimonides and in Gersonides, because Gersonides thinks everything is, is fueled, is, is channeled through nature. 
even the splitting of the sea that we read last week in Parshat Beshalach, the splitting of the sea is nature. It happened to be the right time, the right moment in um, where such a thing could happen. This is miracles are even are even are built into nature itself. Yitz Greenberg, who now uh, my teacher, who is now sick and struggling in Israel, he should he refer Shlema. He is uh, doing. He is stable and he is writing. About, about how he experiences the miracles of God through Israeli doctors. That essentially he doesn't pray for intervention. He essentially has his faith of the presence of God through Israeli medical system. That's how he experiences it. So lots more to st- say, but Steve, let's go to your last, uh, you, you'll have our last comment or question here today. Okay, uh, thank you. And I, I know we're, <clears throat> we're running short of time, so okay. I won't be okay. too long. I was curious if everybody's feelings about God has evolved as much as mine. When I was a kid, it used to be what Lauren was kind of alluding to, a fearsome, wrathful, you must almost bend a knee to be in God's good grace. And then as I got older, more and more really good people and wonderful things came into my life so that I abandoned that completely. And now my God is, is almost all of the above. It, it is um, your rendition of your daughter's questions is my God. Uh, it is Eileen Landau's smile and, and her brilliance. It's Lawrence um, moving from one thought to another. All of this is God to me. And um, I uh, am uh, unfortunately too much of um, an optimist at times, and I, I don't see the bad stuff, but I see so much good stuff everywhere in so many versions from music to sports to VBM um, that that I think that I, I, I don't believe in a personal singular God, but I have never felt more close to God now that I believe that. Beautiful. I, 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 I feel like we need a few more hours just for all of us to share like Steve just did so, so um, bravely and creatively around like his own theology. And I think that we really need spaces to have these conversations. It's like Jews, Jews will do anything but talk about God. We'll talk about kiddish. We'll talk about herring. We'll talk about sports. But like God, like Jews can't talk about God. We we were taught not to do that, you know, because we think that you know, um, you know, we're gonna either alienate or we're gonna sound silly. But actually, it'd be so inspiring to just hear everyone's theologies, our questions, our our understanding, and most certainly. And I wish we, I I I hope we can get to that. Maybe over Shabbos dinner. Maybe this group will have Shabbos dinner together. We'll share our God our God viewpoints, and for us to really. To really see that, the fact that Steve sees it in Eileen and Lauren, he was only getting started. He would have named all of you if we had time, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, uh, and ultimately to experience the beauty of life through the positivity. I mean, most certainly that is that that is the experience of God, Steve, to live in that place of how you see beauty in everything. So thank you for that. And and I know we have all matured in our theologies um, and we can also remember at different times of our life how different it is when we're very scared, or if we're sick, or if we're full of joy, we're just having a great time. Um, if you read Rabbi Nachman, he has very happy Torahs and very sad Torahs. Rabbi Nachman is bipolar, and so he has ecstatic, eccentric Torahs, and he has depressed Torahs, and they're very different. 
And so too for us, like we're in different states of mind and different experiences. And for us to bring that fullness in. Um, and so I give us all the bracha and I hope you'll give it back to me that we continue the search. We, we continue the joy. We get, can continue this, um, this process of being a Jew is not to believe in, in an ends itself, but to be a part of the journey, a part of the question, a part of the, a part of the inquiry. And friends, I know just to conclude, I know we had a very vulnerable few days here as the Jewish people, um, I mean, to, to name the least. Um, I mean, who, who was not scared walking back into a Jewish institution? In the past, scary things happen and then we hear about it when it's over, right? There's an attack in Tree of Life and we hear about it, it's over. There's attack in Poway, San, San Diego and it's over. You know, someone gets beat up outside of an LA kosher restaurant and it's over. Someone gets beat up on a bus, a Jewish person on a bus in London and it's over. There's a terrorist attack in Israel, I mean, it's all the time, but it's over. But for us to sit on edge while the rabbi and his congregants are a hostage I mean, uh, we were going crazy. We were going crazy. We were waiting for this thing to end and thank God it ended okay. Not because someone intervened, but because they, they were trained and they, they had the courage to, to escape. But we should be proud. We should do what we could do to, 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 to foster security for the Jewish community. And we should be proud and not be afraid. And we should continue to come together and learn Torah and seek God everywhere we go. Sending love to all of you. And I hope you'll join. I, I'm, I'm sad to share that, you know, uh, that today we we uh, concluded debate number uh, 30, uh, 35, but number 36 next week, is life about struggle or peace, right? Is life, in from Jewish perspective, ultimately about shalom, that we should be happy and have peace, or is it about struggle and search, right? And we're going to explore this together. Have a wonderful day. Much love. Thank you, Shmuley. Thank you. All of the Barbaras. Bye to all the Barbaras. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.